0: Disasters, True Stories. Narrated by Brad Carty. The Great Fire of Rome. In 64 AD, Rome was suffocating under the heat of a scorching summer, formerly known as the Period of the Boilers, in front of which the citizens were not all equal. The aristocracy took refuge in the countryside, looking for coolness in the gardens of their homes, while the plebs, trapped in their dilapidated apartments in the city center, had no choice but to suffer the heavy temperatures. The poorest contracted fevers, went mad, or perished in the overcrowded metropolis, with a million people crammed into 4,400 acres. The situation degenerated during the night of July 18th when a fire broke out and threatened to reduce the entire city to rubble. Of course, this was not the first time that the capital of the empire had gone up in flames. In the year 27, under the reign of Tiberius, in 37, under Caligula, and in 54, under Claudius, each emperor seems to have had his own large-scale fire. It must be said that, at that time, with its narrow and crowded streets, its interlocking insulae, built with lime-based cement, supported by wooden frames, and where people cooked on every floor, Rome caught fire as easily as a pile of dead leaves. The fire of July 18th, however, remains famous for being the most devastating, the most tenacious, but also the one whose origin remains to this day an enigma. It is thus on a full-moon night that the drama begins. While the Eternal City is asleep, a fire breaks out in the Circus Maximus, the largest sports arena in the known world, usually dedicated to chariot races. Carried by a frantic wind, fanned by combustible merchandise stored in nearby warehouses, the flames envelop the Great Circus before spreading to the heights of the Palatine, one of the seven hills of Rome. Once at the top, the flames quickly spread out in all directions, pulverizing iconic monuments such as the temples dedicated to Jupiter, Luna, Vesta, the Palatine Library, the Imperial Palaces. Nothing could stop their progression. Out of the city's 14 districts, three will be completely ravaged, seven partially bruised, and only four will come out unscathed. Caught off guard? The citizens hurriedly get out of their beds, and panic breaks out. The most imprudent return to their homes in order to recover some precious goods. Others rush towards the Tiber, where the air near the river seemed more breathable. Solidarity gives way to every man for himself. Everyone jostles each other, the elderly are abandoned, children trampled. As soon as the first emperors appear, looters take advantage of the chaos and sneak into the most opulent residences. On the morning of July 19th, the fire continued to destroy everything in its path. A messenger escaped from the burning inferno and started a frantic race towards Anzio, a small town on the Bay of Naples. There he presented himself to the emperor Nero, who was staying in his native region. Informed of the tragedy, he immediately set out for Rome, accompanied by his advisers and his Praetorian guard. When he reached the outskirts of the capital, three days later, it was more than ever in flames. A huge cloud of smoke hung in the air, and incandescent columns rose from time to time from the affected districts. The Imperator supervised the action of the overworked guards and instructed them to rescue the wounded and evacuate the corpses as a priority. Nero himself got involved, welcoming the victims to his property on the other side of the Tiber, on the Vatican plain. They were sheltered in tents, cared for and fed, all for free. He also agreed to make compromises, for example, by giving in to the fire, Entire buildings were deliberately burned down in order to leave a blank space to prevent the fire from spreading further. On the morning of July 28th, after six days and seven nights of terror, the last fires were extinguished and a disastrous balance sheet could be drawn up. Several thousand dead, 12,000 buildings destroyed, countless Romans homeless. In the heart of an unrecognizable Rome, transformed into a maze of burnt ruins, processions were organized to the glory of Vulcan, god of fire. But neither he nor any other deity seemed to want to answer for the catastrophe. Suspicions naturally turned to the emperor of the human race, on the throne for a decade the descendant of Apollo, Nero, blamed for being the arsonist. It would not be his first misdeed. He was responsible for the assassination of his brother, Britannicus, an obstacle to supreme power, as well as his mother, Agrippina, his increasingly influential guardian, and his two wives, the first accused of adultery and then exiled to an island, the other pregnant, succumbing to a violent kick to the stomach his insanity would have pushed him to reduce Rome to ashes in order to build a new city called Neropolis. Some writings of the antiquity abound in this direction. A few decades later, the author Suetonius peddled a legend according to which Nero, fascinated by the flamboyant spectacle on his arrival in the capital, would have perched in the spared gardens of Messina's at the top of the Esquiline before putting on his actor's clothes to play the zither and interpret a song inspired by the Trojan War. Another historian, Tacitus, nine years old at the time of these events, is more reserved about the involvement of the Imperator. He writes nevertheless in his work some disturbing elements. In the first days, nobody dared to fight the fire, threatening voices forbade it to be extinguished. Strangers publicly threw torches, shouting that they were authorized either to plunder with more license or, indeed, to act by order. Whose orders? History does not mention it. Still, Nero, wishing to silence the rumors about him, set out to find a scapegoat. The maneuver consisted in avoiding any insurrection by the plebs, not by appeasing their anger, but rather by diverting it onto the Christians who were in the minority at the time, numbering only a few hundred followers. He accused them of having set fire to the city, had most of them arrested, and condemned them to the worst torments. Tacitus again reports terrible testimonies. Their execution was turned into a game. They were dressed in animal skins and died under the bite of dogs, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were set on fire so that, when the day fell, they would burn and serve as night lights. Following the fire of July 18th, 64, instead of rebuilding housing in the destroyed areas, Nero had the Domus Aurea, or Golden House, built, a gigantic palace covering several hundred acres cleared by the flames. At the entrance, in the middle of the vestibule, stands a 118-foot-high statue of himself. And that's not all. The residence conceals wonders, an artificial lake, vast gardens where domestic and wild animals live, a banquet hall turning in on itself. There are no sanitary facilities, no bedroom. The whole is only a monument intended to satisfy a sovereign full of himself. Shortly after his death, in the year 69, the building was given back to the population and then progressively redeveloped before being partly covered by the Colosseum. There remains, nevertheless, a great deal of doubt as to the origin of the fire, fruit of the black designs of a megalomaniac emperor, or banal accident in a city full to bursting. Still today, the subject is debated among researchers. In any case, it is difficult to find the slightest valid clue hidden in the secrets of a city that has been knocked down many times and then straightened up in perpetual evolution through the centuries.